Heavenly Father, there is nothing more significant right now for you to do than for you to come and be with us as we look at your scripture. Everything else is secondary compared to that. So my, my prayer to you for me and for my friends is that you would open up the word for us this morning, Father God, and that you would unpack everything about who you are that you want us to see and that you would cause our hearts to embrace it as a treasure. I ask that you would do this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So 700 years before the birth of Jesus Christ, uh, the prophet Isaiah recorded a promise um, from God to his people. And this promise is, is rooted in who God is and what he was about to do for the people of Israel. And it really is a, a glimpse of everything that God is doing in Scripture and everything that we've been looking at in the book of Ruth. There are many things, and we've talked about a few of them over the past few weeks, there are many things that we've looked at in the book of Ruth and really zeroed in on aspects of this story that are glorious and wonderful. But this theme that I'm about to read in the book of Isaiah is the central theme in the book of Ruth, and it is the central theme in Scripture. So Isaiah 44, 21, I'm going to read through this, and then we'll get to our text in Ruth, says this. This is God talking to his people. Isaiah 44, 21. Remember these things, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servants. I formed you. You are my servant, O Israel. You will not be forgotten by me. I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like a mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Sing, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout, O depths of the earth, break forth into singing, O mountains, O forest, and every tree in it, for the Lord has redeemed Jacob and will be glorified in Israel. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer. So God says, I have redeemed you. The Lord has redeemed Jacob, the Lord, your Redeemer. Think about this uh, for a moment. This act of redemption is so central to God's character, so central to what he's doing with his people, that he wants to be known by that. He wants to be known that he is the God who redeems. He is the Lord, the Redeemer. And that's our God. That's our God. This fact about God is exactly what we see as we cross now the midway point of the book of Ruth. And if, last week, if you recall, Ruth had returned from a full day of gleaning in the fields, and she and Naomi had arrived in Bethlehem earlier, if you remember a few weeks back, um, and they arrived with nothing. They had really nothing uh, that we know of. But now she has an ephah of barley, which is like five days' worth of food, and um, when she, when she first came into Bethlehem with Naomi, one of the reasons why I say that she had nothing is because Naomi herself says that of her. She says, I came, I left Israel full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Meaning, I had a, a husband 
and I had two sons, and now they're dead. They're gone. And all that Naomi has is her daughter-in-law, Ruth. And Ruth has, as we've talked about, sacrificed everything for Naomi. She sacrificed her family, her people, her entire life back in Moab. She is left behind just to stay with Naomi. And now in the fields of Judah, she goes out to glean, trusting in God's providence, and a man named Boaz appears. And Boaz, after hearing of her sacrifice, um, has really given her unrestricted access to his harvest. He's blessed her in such extraordinary ways that Naomi can't believe what's going on when she comes back. And last week we saw Ruth explain to Naomi all that had taken place in that day. And we saw Naomi finally come to a turning point in her story. Before that, she was devoid of hope. She was living on fumes, really, of trusting in God. And now she is seeing God's providential hand in her life, loving her and caring for her. But even in this conversation, this turning port for Naomi, that's not the most important aspect of what is about to go on between Naomi and Ruth. There's something about Boaz that Ruth does not know yet. And it is something that could change their lives forever, both Naomi and Ruth. So please turn with me to Ruth chapter two. This is what we'll be spending most of our time today. Verse 19. Ruth 2, 19. And what I want to do is we're going to read through some of what we read last week, but I want to read through this to the end of the chapter, and then I want to unpack it and ask some questions about what we see. So verse 19 begins like this. It says, And her mother-in-law said to her, so Naomi said to Ruth, where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law in whom she, with whom she had worked and said, the man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. She's turning right now to realize God still loves her. He's still with her. And then Naomi says, Naomi also said to her, the man, Boaz, is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, besides, he said to me, you shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So Ruth kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest. And she lived with her mother-in-law. So Ruth tells Naomi of the provision that Boaz has given her, the protection that he's offered her in his fields. Stay in the fields for the rest of harvest, and I'm going to protect you. I'm going to tell the young men not to touch you or harm you. And we mentioned before, gleaning in the fields, especially for a young woman like, like uh, Ruth, who's a Moabite, is a dangerous task because women are vulnerable out in the fields. So Boaz's protection, his provision for Ruth at this point is extraordinary, and it's a blessing. And so Naomi tells Ruth, you need to stay in these fields. You need to stay in his protection. And so at the end of the chapter, we see the close of the barley and the wheat harvest 
and it says that Ruth lived with her mother-in-law. And I want to pause for a second because um, this is actually an important point. There are several points across the story of, of Ruth, the book of Ruth, where she could just turn and leave. She could jet and abandon Naomi. And this verse is here because the author wants to remind us she's not going anywhere. She has a remarkable, sacrificial love for Naomi. And Ruth has proven capable in chapter 2 of being able to provide for herself. She worked her tail off in the fields, and she gathered a ton of wheat. Um, And if she didn't love Naomi, she would leave her. But she loves Naomi. And even though Naomi's told her already in chapter 1, you should just leave me and seek rest for your husband, she is holding fast to the promise she made to Naomi, I'm not leaving you. Even when you die, I will be buried by you. But that aspect isn't the most critical part of the passage we just read. One line, and you may have guessed it already, is the central and most pivotal part, not only of the passage we read, but of the entire book. And that line is Naomi's statement in verse 20. So let's look at Ruth 2.20. It says this, Naomi also said to her, the man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. So Boaz is a close relative of Naomi and Ruth's. And this isn't a surprise to us if you were with us a few weeks back. <laughs> the author at the beginning of the chap- chapter 2 says explicitly this, says that Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. So Boaz is of the clan of Elimelech. Elimelech is Naomi's deceased husband. And therefore, to Naomi, Boaz is a kinsman. He is a relative. He's a close relative. And this fact makes him, according to Naomi's statement here, a redeemer. Now, what in the world does that mean? Why is that relevant to this story? Well, to redeem, and you guys know this um, just from English, redeem is to buy back something or to recover something. It is to make amends when someone does something wrong, to redeem a situation. Or it could mean to ransom something back that was lost from your possession and you want back. So it's a powerful word, and it has these hopeful notes in it. But what it, why is Naomi bringing this up here? What's the purpose of her bringing this up? Well, she's actually referring to some provisions that were made in Hebrew law for the death of a husband. And so Naomi and Ruth have both lost their husbands. They are widows. And in the Hebrew law, there were provisions specifically for widows. And we're going to look at two of them today. The first one is the provision for the redemption of property. So in Leviticus 25, you don't need to go there. I'll read the text and it'll be on the screen. Leviticus 25, look at this passage. Look what God is saying to his people about the redemption of property. The land shall not be sold in perpetuity. This is God talking. For the land is mine. For you are strangers, Israel, and sojourners with me. And in all the country you possess, you shall allow a redemption of the land. If your brother becomes poor and sells part of his property, then the nearest redeemer shall come and redeem what his brother has sold. 
So God says here to the people of Israel in Leviticus, the land's mine, I own it, all of the promised land. And you are sojourners, you are strangers here, you're kind of like tenants here for the land, which means that my rules are important because it's my land. And if someone is forced to sell land because of poverty, if someone's forced to sell land because the main provider in the family dies, then a kinsman must redeem it so that it will remain in the family. And it could be potentially brought back, the passage in Leviticus goes on to tell us, by the original owner if they come into money or are blessed by God. And so this gave the people of Israel a chance for the property to be restored to the original owners. That's one provision in the Hebrew law for redemption. The other one, which is more significant, that Naomi may have in mind. It's more significant, but our modern ears will make it sound very different and strange, is the provision for marriage. So listen to this in Deuteronomy 25. It says this, If brothers dwell together, and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband... Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall, shall succeed to the name of his dead brother that his name, that the person who died, may not be blotted out of Israel. So in this act of redemption, it is a redemption of the family's name. It's where a man takes his brother's place in the event that his brother dies and he marries his brother's wife in order that that brother who died, his name is not blotted out. His name is not removed from Israel. And so the first son of the wife becomes the heir and basically takes over where his, his father, not his biological father, but his father's brother um, left off. And so this rule obviously is massively important in in the context of the family of Israel, the nation of Israel. Um, but it's definitely not something that makes sense in our modern context. But my hope is that thinking about this against the backdrop of Ruth's story, you can see why this is extraordinarily important to continue these individual families and their names. But even just, not even that in and of itself, survival day to day. So a woman without a husband, like we've said in the past, at this time in history, has no hope outside of someone in the community or a redeemer coming into the equation. And so this act of redemption is really a radical grace of God to provide for the people who lose a family member that they relied on. And it is yet another glimpse to God's grace in Naomi's life. And though Naomi doesn't suggest anything at this point in the story, she may be thinking in her mind when she says the word redeemer, that if Boaz has shown Ruth favor in the fields, perhaps something could come of this. And yet, we get to the end of the chapter and there's no mention of his status as redeemer all the way through the end and harvest closes. And so at least two months, maybe three have passed at this point. But when we pick up in chapter three, we see that Boaz's status as redeemer has not been forgotten by Naomi. In fact, she's probably given it a lot of thought. Let's look at verse 1 in chapter 3. It says this, Then Naomi, 
her mother-in-law, Ruth's mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative, with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself. Put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he is finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And Ruth replied, all that you say, I will do. So Naomi says here, very clearly, she tells Ruth, I desire for you to have rest. I desire for it to be well with you. And it's worth noting that this isn't the first time in our, in our journey through the book of Ruth that Naomi said these almost exact words to Ruth. In chapter 1, if you remember, Ruth and Orpah, Naomi's two daughters who lost both of their husbands, both of them um, were sticking with Naomi as she left Moab and went back to Israel. And Naomi's pleading with them, you need to go back to your homes. You need to seek rest in the house of your husband. But Ruth, unlike Orpah, refuses to do that. She does not want rest. She wants to be with Naomi. She wants to stay with Naomi because she loves her. So whatever you might think of the strangeness and the weirdness of Naomi's request of Ruth, it's very clear that Naomi loves Ruth and she wants Ruth to have rest. She wants Ruth to have some level of peace. And we'll talk more about the, the concept of rest in the book of Ruth <laughs> later on because it actually has a, a really, it's a really significant part. But right now I want to look at this scene. So Naomi's reminding Ruth of Boaz, that he's one of their relatives, which means that he's a redeemer. That's the only reason why she'd bring this up. And so immediately we know that the rest that Ruth or that Naomi's seeking for Ruth is the rest that she would have with Boaz as her husband. And so the details of this plan are spelled out by Naomi. She says, Boaz is winnowing barley at the threshing floor. He's forcing out the chaff from the, the barley that they've collected so that everything that they have is edible and good to eat. She tells Ruth, wash yourself, anoint yourself, go down to the threshing floor secretly. Don't make a big deal about this. And she tells her to wait for Boaz to finish eating and drinking. And then when he lies down to sleep, you go to him and you uncover his feet and lie down near them at his feet. And Boaz will tell her what to do. To which Ruth responds by saying, I'm going to do all of this. I'll do all of this. Now, at this point, I want to pause here because um, there's a lot of talk historically from scholars, secular scholars, about this being an inappropriate scene. And uh, that some saying that his feet are a euphemism for something else. And I need to talk about this just mainly just to, to push this off to the side and prove to you that it's not that case. The basic idea that they would present is that Naomi's sending Ruth in there to seduce Boaz so that he would marry her. There's several reasons why this idea doesn't float. One of which being that it actually doesn't say that in the text. But another reason is that, um, that this, the Bible holds this out as virtuous. If it was going to mention a scene like this, it wouldn't hold it out as virtuous. It would treat it like every other time something like that went down. And it does exactly, precisely hold it out as virtuous as we get through this text. But the main reason it's clear that this isn't a scandalous scene or an inappropriate scene 
is because the Bible's not scared of scandalous events. It's not. Throughout Scripture, there are very scandalous scenes, and this is uh, nothing compared to them. So for the Bible to exclude this or change the language in order to hide something that's going on here makes no sense. It's, it's ridiculous to assume that anything but what the text says at face value is actually happening. And what that means is that Naomi desires that Ruth would have a husband and that Boaz, a worthy, as we've already seen, God-fearing man, whose character is indisputable at this point, would be that husband. And so she sends Ruth to discreetly and humbly, yet boldly, propose marriage to Boaz. And we'll see the specifics of why this act in particular, this action, is a proposal for marriage in a bit. But Ruth agrees to head off, and she goes under the cover of night. And presumably because Naomi doesn't want this to be public, she doesn't want Boaz to be embarrassed or unduly pressured into marriage, even though they know he has affections for her. And they know ultimately that if it's God's will that they marry Ruth and Boaz, it will happen without a doubt. So let's pick up in verse 6 and read through what the sequence of events, how this plays out, what Naomi's instructed Ruth to do. Verse 6 says, So she, Ruth, went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her, And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over. And behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. So here, Ruth obeys Naomi's instructions to a T. And then when Boaz awakens at midnight and says, who are you? He's shocked that there's a woman at his feet. She says to him, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Now, One quick note here is that she refers to herself as his servant. She's not his servant. She's not his servant. Earlier in chapter 2, when she asked Boaz why he's being so gracious to her the first day she goes out to glean, she says, why are you treating me like a servant when I'm not your servant? And so what's clear here is that though she's probably not formally his servant or officially his servant, he treats her kindly and generously like she is. He doesn't treat her like she's an outsider. She is part of his family already because she's, she's treated like a servant. And then she has this request, spread your wings over me for you are a redeemer. And this request to spread his wings is actually a request for the covenant of marriage. It is a request for redemption. The word wings here is the same Hebrew word for the corners of the garment that she's just tilted and and removed in order to uncover his feet. In other words, she's saying, redeem me, spread the corners of your garment over me, and this act is an act of marriage. It is a request for him to remove the reproach of her widowhood and enter in a covenant of marriage by covering her 
with his robe. And you remember, when I say reproach of widowhood, she has no heir. She was with Malon, Elimelech's son, Naomi's son, for 10 years and had no children. She has no heir, and that means Naomi has no heir, and that means the family of Elimelech has no heir right now. So part of this act of redemption is to remove the reproach of her widowhood and give her an heir. <clears throat> and she's asking him, in the privacy of the threshing floor, would you redeem me? Now, what is his response? She knows that they're both part of the clan of Elimelech. Legally, he can redeem her. What does he say? How does he handle this request? Well, verse 10 and 11 tell us. It says, And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first in that you have not gone after younger men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. So Boaz's immediate response is blessing. His immediate response is, I see what you're doing here. This is a gracious and kind act that you're doing. And then he tells her, your kindness uh, is plain to me because you didn't go after any of the young men, whether rich or poor. You didn't go after somebody else. So apparently Boaz is a little bit older than Ruth, which is why he refers to her as his daughter. She chose him and he's taken back by it. We don't know if he means the kindness in choosing him as a redeemer or if it's the kindness in thinking about Naomi who can be redeemed in this way. We don't know. Probably both, if the text is any indication. It's, it's hard to tell. But either way, Boaz is pleased with this. He is overwhelmed with joy and tells her, do not fear. I'm going to do all that you ask for. For all the fellow townsmen that I have know that you are a worthy woman. Boaz and, and Ruth are referred to as worthy. Same word that is used to talk about Boaz is talk, used to talk about Ruth. They are honorable people. They are virtuous people, which is another slight against any interpretation of this text to say otherwise. Even Ruth, who's a Moabite, is respected, and so he promises to do everything that she's asked for. In other words, I'm going to redeem you, Ruth. Now, I'm not going to read any further today on this text. And some of you who've read this text before and who love this text are like, why are you doing that? There's a lot more going on here than what you've just read. It's not as simple as it sounds right now, and that's true. Um, and we'll get to that next Sunday, God willing. But what I want to do is I want to take this text as it is right now, and I want to pause and I want to consider what we've read and just ask a really simple question. Why would God put this in the Bible? Why would God put a story like this, a story of redemption, a little pericope, a little small story, four chapters long. Why? And the New Testament gives us hints to why this happens. Luke 24, 27, for example, we're told in there by Jesus that all of the scriptures, meaning the entire Old Testament, point to one thing, Jesus 
And in John 5, 39, I don't know if you remember this scene, Jesus is telling the Pharisees, who are really the unrivaled Bible scholars of the day, he says in John 5, 539, you search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. So the scriptures bear witness about Jesus, and that includes the book of Ruth. So here's the deal. Ruth is primarily a story of redemption. You're going to see that. If you don't think this is clear enough today, you're going to see that as the story goes on. It definitely shows things like extraordinary sacrifice. It definitely shows things like God's sovereignty, even in painful situations. And it shows things um, like how we're to walk through suffering, agonizing suffering in this life, trusting in God. But the main thing that the book of Ruth shows us is a picture of redemption with Boaz as the redeemer. And Boaz is just now, in this text, promised Ruth, I will do all that you ask. Do not fear, Ruth. I'm going to do this. So what in the world does that scene between Boaz and Ruth have to do with Jesus? What's the connection? And to answer that, what I want to do is I want to look at verse 20 again in chapter 2, or chapter 3. She says, Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. This is what Ruth says to Boaz. You are a redeemer. Spread your wings over your servant. Think about the language here. Is this the first time we've heard this language in the book of Ruth? The language of wings? It's not. It's not the first time. This is actually the second time. In Ruth 2.12, if you remember, when Boaz first meets Ruth, he says to her something that sounds very similar to her request in 3.20. He says this, The Lord repay you for what you have done, Ruth, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Boaz tells Ruth, the first day they meet, under whose wings God, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. And now Ruth is asking Boaz, spread your wings and redeem me. And like I said here, the language, the word for wing, kanaf in Hebrew, is the same word for the hem of the garment. The same word for the edge of the garment. And so there's a clear connection between taking refuge under the wings of God in this book, trusting him, and the act of marriage, the covenant of marriage. And we actually see this in very vivid terms in Ezekiel 16. So in Ezekiel 16 is a passage where God is speaking to his people through the prophet Ezekiel and he's depicting Israel, his people, as an abandoned woman who has been forsaken by everyone. And in that depiction, she is alone, she is naked, she has no hope. But listen to what God says to her in Ezekiel 16, 8. How he articulates his relationship with the nation of Israel. When I passed by you again and saw you, 
Behold, you were at the age for love. And I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. And I made my vow to you and entered into covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. He says, I made a vow with you, Israel. I made a covenant with you, and you became mine, my possession, my wife. This is marriage, and it is signified by a bridegroom seeking and pursuing and covering ultimately his bride, which is a picture of God's redemption. His covering of his bride with his affection is his spreading of his wings over her. And as a result, she becomes his forever. And this is the very thing that, if you remember at our, the beginning of our time today, we looked at it in the book of Isaiah. God sees himself as a bridegroom. He sees himself as a husband. And his people are the bride. And so at the heart of redemption, we need to see this is an act of profound love by God, not just for a people, because we can make that ambiguous in our minds, but the kind of love a husband has for his wife. And so the purpose of the book of Ruth isn't just a clever story. It isn't just a a story to entertain us, a love story to entertain us. It isn't just a historical event recorded for our benefit. Though it is all of those things, it isn't just that. The purpose of the book of Ruth, all of it, is to show us that in every covenant of marriage that exists, every faithful, Christ-exalting covenant of marriage that exists in our world, including what Ruth has just proposed to Boaz, is a picture of the ultimate marriage between God and his people. And it's the main reason that marriage exists. We can, we can forget this so easily. Marriage is glorious and it allows for family and procreation, legacy in our children. It creates community. They are all impre- incredibly important. But the main purpose for marriage is not those things. The main purpose in marriage is to show us a picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ, God's redemption. And that picture is a picture of God actively, ferociously pursuing his people to the ends of the earth, which is why marriage in Christianity is so sacred. It's not about us primarily. It's not. It's about God and his love for us. And the way God goes about his pursuit of his people throughout all of Scripture is mainly through his son, Jesus Christ. God did not wait for us to ask him to spread his wings over us like Ruth did with Boaz. He didn't. Because if if I'm real with you, we never would have asked him to do that. We never would have asked him to do that. Not in a million years. But God took things into his own hands and pursued us anyways And unlike Ruth, where it was a matter of poverty, it was a matter of widowhood, there were tangible things that she needed. She has affections for Boaz, it's clear, but it was about tangible things. Unlike Ruth, who's a widow, we aren't victims of widowhood as sinners. We are perpetrators of widowhood as sinners. 
we have betrayed and rebelled against our only husband, God. And so sin, think about it this way. Sin isn't just a denial of God's divinity. It is that. It does tell God, you're not God, you can't tell me what to do. Sin isn't just that. Sin is a denial of him as our husband. That's what sin is. Sin tells God, I don't trust you and I don't believe that you love me. That's what the act of sin and the disposition of sin does. And God, in his grace and in his love for us, takes this pursuit into his own hands. If he ever was going to do this, it had to be through redemption. He had to pay to get us back. He had to redeem us. He had to take the initiative. And this is exactly what Jesus Christ does on the cross. Marriage, God between his people, is the reason the cross exists. It is a dowry price for his bride to ransom her. And the ransom needed here and the redemption needed here wasn't just simply an exchange of gold or money. The only way to purify and forgive his people, the only way to ransom them and redeem them to himself was for him to give up his only son. So let me read a few passages and you can t- tell me if you think you see redemption in Jesus Christ. Ephesians 1, 7 through 8. In him, in Jesus We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. 1 Peter 1, 18 through 19, you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Acts 20, 28, the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to, the, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Colossians 1, 13 through 14. You guys remember this from last year if you were with us. He, God, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And my favorite passage in the New Testament on redemption is Titus 2, 13 through 14. Our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. You became mine who are zealous for good works. Paul says we are a people for God's own possession. This is at the heart of the message of the book of Ruth. This is at the heart of the message of the entire Bible. The center of scripture is the redemption that is found in Christ Jesus. So this is what that means. It means the word marriage and the word redemption exist in our lexicon to show primarily to show us the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why we have words for those realities. To show us the gospel, to show us God's redemption of mankind through Jesus. Every other way that you might use the word marriage, every other way that you might use the word redemption, 
which might be true and accurate, are infinitely secondary to this one way, that Jesus Christ has redeemed us by his blood to be our, his bride. He ransomed his bride on the day that he died. And now he will tell us, you became mine. We're his. We belong to him. He has spread his wings over us in the cross and we belong to God. Not in a generic sense that he made us, but in a sense that he fought to have us back. We're going to worship here in a few moments. And one of the ways we do this at Risen Hope is through the act of communion, through the Lord's Supper. And so if your faith is in Christ Jesus, if you trust Jesus and what he's accomplished for you on the cross, this ransom, this redemption that he's achieved for us, this dowry price, I would ask that you receive the elements and worship and glory in that that you belong to God, that he has spread his wings over you and he loves you more than you can possibly conceive of. But if you don't believe that, or maybe you struggle to believe that God's love can be that way for you, no matter what you've done this week, and you struggle maybe to think that God would send his son to ransom you because you know what you've done, you know what, how you've messed up, and I would ask you to take the next few minutes to pray and plead with God that he would supply you with whatever you need to know this truth, the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, not just as an ambiguous reality, but as your treasure. That this gospel would be your treasure, that you would delight in glory in God because of what he's done here. This is real. This is not a fictional event. This is a real powerful love that happened on the cross. And there is nothing, literally nothing in the world more important than this. To see him as a triumphant bridegroom who has redeemed us from the penalty of sin so that he can say to us, you will not be forgotten by me. I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sin like mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are so worthy. As God, creator of heaven and earth, sustainer of the universe, you are worthy intrinsically. There's no reason we should not praise you and worship you. Yet in our sin, we are so drawn away from your glory and we embrace everything else in the world that is temporary and fleeting and going to fade away. And in this act that we get a glimpse of in the book of Ruth, you penetrated human history and you came for us. You refused for us to run from you. And you came for us and you took us and cleansed us with the blood of your son. You said, I will have a bride for myself. 
I will redeem a people for myself for the glory of my name and for the sake of their joy in me. And then you accomplished it triumphantly through your son, Christ Jesus, our bridegroom. Thank you, Jesus, for that. I pray that in the next few moments as we worship, Father, the reality of what that is, Father, not just the fact, who cares about facts, the reality would penetrate our soul and we would be gripped by it, Father, that our lives from this moment forward would be dominated by the reality that God didn't take no for an answer. He pursued us and he has taken us to himself and he says to us every day, you are mine. You belong to me. I love you. May that be true for us, Father, for every person in this room. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.